Street space. This is Wheel Life. Legal reflections on vulnerable road users. The podcast where two experienced lawyers, who also happen to be enthusiastic cyclists, chat their way through topics concerning cyclists and other vulnerable road users from a legal and insurance perspective. Hello and welcome to this episode of We Are Life. I'm Emily Formby of 39 Essex Chambers. And I'm Caroline Hall of DAC Beechcrofts. So how are you, Caroline? I'm not too bad today, actually. It's, uh, this, it, the weather's improved, so it's a lot nicer not cycling in the rain. That's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. Well, we're enjoying a bit of cycling at the moment. Got the tandem out, got it all uh, refurbed and um, actually took it to Nick, um, who regular listeners will remember from an earlier episode, uh, Nick of Hadbike has um, done his magic and now the gears work, so it's an awful lot easier to use. Oh, I Honestly, I wish he was around here because I'm having issues trying to get my bike service, so it oh. would be very helpful if he can expand into Bristol. Um, but I did see a thing this morning on LinkedIn that apparently tandem sales have gone through the roof and there's a waiting list into 2022 for tandems. Oh, that is interesting. Well, I have to be careful if I try and lock it up so it doesn't uh, go walkabouts, but um, I'm not surprised. They are utterly brilliant i mean everybody laughs at us but honestly it is the way to go and the the only other thing about tandem sorry just the other random fact is in bristol do you know where you have on the floor the two meters stay two meters apart signs yeah they're actually there's a load of those that have gone down saying two meters is further than you think and it's the width of a tandem so they've got pictures of tandems and you've got to pretend stand apart as far as a tandem fantastic so we are our own walking uh, social distance distance. (laughs) well um, I love my tandem I have to say I took my mum on it and uh, my dad said to me she is never ever going to do that again (laughs) other than that um, in this episode uh, we have a special guest uh, a colleague of mine from Chambers uh, Daniel Kozelko hi how are you I'm good, thanks. I'm good. Just looking out the window and enjoying the um, enjoying the weather as well. Now that you mention it, Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> and how about you on bikes? What's your cycling history? Well, um, up until recently, I, I I didn't used to cycle. I moved to London um, four years ago and was really scared of the roads. Um, but as a result of COVID, I thought I'd have a go on the Boris bikes, and and in fact now do use them quite regularly. So. Um, I'm thinking about getting one of those, um, you know, the keys they use to Absolutely. You just unlock them. Yeah, so um, I've, I've got that. And I've also got a special folding helmet that um, I can put in a bag and hide away. And it comes out and it pops out and concertinas out. A folding helmet? I've yeah. never heard of one of those. Yeah, the... the um, it, I, well, I don't know if it works because obviously you, you you never want to you know use the helmet. But I, I I've always ridden with helmets, and it felt like the best thing to use because I could just throw it in a bag when I'm done. No, absolutely. So did you get that in a bike shop? To my for my shame, Amazon. But um, I saw the reviews online, and it was well reviewed. But I mean, it's it's a proper thing. Oh yeah, yeah yeah yeah. yeah. That's amazing. I think it's the kind of thing that will also get more popular moving forwards when e-scooters um, start taking over the world mm. as they already have. Um, as I, I keep saying, I need to try them out, but I refuse to do it without my cycle helmet. So um, you, there's a theme coming here. Caroline generally gets an e-scooter mentioned in within about the first five minutes. <laughs> um, I didn't mention it last time. I don't think. No, you didn't mention it the last episode at all. But um, so I normally have always have a have a helmet as well. Mm. But I always have it. I have it pegged onto the back of my rucksack, so it sort of is there like a kind of turtle hump when I'm uh, not on the bike, <laughs> which is a folding one. That's great. I have never even heard of it. Uh, yeah, but its efficacy seems, um, the reviews were good, were they? 
the reviews are all very positive and it has all the relevant marks. And I mean, I, I can't pretend to know loads about um, bike helmets, but um, yeah, the what the internet said was very positive and, and I trusted <laughs> the internet apparently. And we so, know we can go. believe what we read on the internet. Well, that's, <laughs> no, that is good to know, actually. And uh, you are one of our, we always talk about the mythical creature, which is the man or woman, that the person that has come to cycling since COVID. And here you are. Yeah. Um, and also here you are today, not to talk about uh, collapsing helmets, but I shall be looking into those, but talking to us about street space. Yeah, so um, street space, um, big change in the last year in London, policy from the London Mayor uh, that was introduced in May 2020. And uh, it, it's a very interesting policy in the sense that the overriding intention was very much to overhaul London streets. That's the words that are used in the policy. Um, and it talks about things like suppressing, so that's the, use actually word, the word actually used, um, suppressing motorised transport. And so um, street space is the policy under which we've seen a lot of changes in the capital. And is that um, triggered by COVID? Yes. So the themes in the policy are things that you see in a lot of the earlier policies from the London Mayor, from the current London Mayor particularly. Um, but it, it's been developed in a way that responds or tries to respond as best as it can do to COVID-19. So it was something that existed before, but has been given a shot in the arm by COVID? The, the policies definitely existed before, mainly in, there's a 2018 transport strategy from the current mayor, um, and there's a similar strategy, I think it's 2019, but it might be 2018, on cycling in the capital. So it sort of takes those policies and, as you say, gives them the a shot in the arm. Well, actually, so, no, it, oh, I was going to say, and you know, in this podcast, we love cycling. So what's the uh, strategy for cycling? Um, well, you see that around um, a lot of London, which is the cycle lanes are a very big thing and have been growing for a number of years. Cycle lanes being put in everywhere. I've, I've got cases ongoing about a cycle lane that's been put in in the last few months in um, the um, Chiswick uh, High Road. Um, but what the actual plan was originally was for a permanent one, which had been brought forward from 2017, 2018. And one of the things we're seeing across London is infilling in the existing cycleway routes that were available in London. So it, there's a lot of cycling opportunities in London going forward. So is it just London that the street space plan relates to or specifically or is it the other cities around the country or does each uh, big metropolitan city have its own plan? So it's, it's more like the, your third option there, Caroline. It's the, the street space plan is, is Sadiq Khan's personal plan, I said personal mayor plan in London. And um, he has obligations under the Great London Authority Act in 1999 to make these kinds of policies. Um, which guide how transport is managed in the capital. But other places around the UK have been implementing similar schemes and similar policies to try and get the same results. Um, I, COVID very much has impacted upon many major uh, cities in the UK in how they manage their transport. So there was a Central Government Emergency Active Travel Fund, wasn't there, which... Uh put forward a lot of money to try and improve things in the short term when uh, the first lockdown ended. Yeah. Um, and that, I, th I, can't, I think it was 250 million was one of the figures that's yeah. banded about in relation to Yeah, it's to 250. It. Yeah. And 
that that's been given and can be applied for. So a lot of the funding works in London from the local authority level. So, you know, you'd have a London borough apply, provide a scheme where it wants to implement under the auspices of street space, and then that funding is divvied out over time. And that had uh, sort of four main schemes, didn't it? The, the widening pavements, I think the one that everyone will most immediately remember is widening pavements to enable uh, restaurants and cafes and things to have both social distancing walking on the pavements, but in particular, uh, increasing amounts of outdoor seating, because that's well, it was the only place we were allowed to meet. Hopefully, soon will be again. Um, there was also, as you've already mentioned, reference to cycle lanes. Um, and then two other areas of um, school streets about um, making, uh, restricting vehicles about sort of around uh, the picking up and dropping off at school. And also the development of low traffic neighbourhoods. Um, uh, th those were the four sort of main areas, weren't they? Yeah, they, they are identified as the mechanisms in street space using this funding that's available to get the results um, that street space, street space policy looks for, which is these ideas of transforming the streets, suppressing motorised transport. So how is it going? Well, it, you, you'll have seen looking around London the number of changes that have been made. From an implementation perspective, there has been a lot of implementation. Some examples that people might know about are the closures of Bishopsgate, which was um, closed to everything but buses and cyclists. And we'll probably discuss that later because there's been some interesting legal challenges in respect ah, to that. That'll be the UTAG litigation. Yep, yeah. We'll come back to that in a minute. Yep. Um, so you've seen that. I mean, in the capital, in the centre of the capital, there's been a lot of road closures. You see these things called low traffic neighbourhoods, LTNs. They're all over the capital now. Um, and as I've said already, there's a lot of cycle lanes that have gone in in a temporary format. In the question of how is it going, currently there's more intrigue, shall we say, because there are legal challenges. Some of the councils are taking their things out. Um, yeah, it's quite it's quite a mixed image currently. I mean, I suppose it's difficult if you look at it simply from the point of view of the pandemic, um, with everybody, particularly after the first lockdown ended and uh, people were being encouraged to get out and about. But at the same time, uh, socially distance and not surprisingly, a certain amount of uh, concern and fear from being particularly in London, back on the tube, but around the country, back on sort of public transport. Um, and so the desire to get moving, but at the same time, not for it to simply be a car-based recovery, because uh, going forward, you know, within the next 30 years, we have to be out of cars pretty much altogether. So I can see that that's that, a sort of difficult dilemma of how to balance that desire to get people moving about a bit without immediately getting into cars and making it either uh, a, an environmental disaster or indeed a, an economically disparate uh, recovery. Well, one of the, um, I, I sent you both, there was an article, a long article about um, just the ex exact point this morning in um, on one of the papers. Um, but one of the comments I read in it, which I thought was quite interesting, was that they were on about that... Um, motorists uh, feel that things are being done to them rather than feel like they're being brought along um, for the ride and do we think the fact that it's all happened in a very short period of time um, has had an impact on how people think about it and we've also not had very much else to think about in the last 12 months so let's argue about the street down the road that's just been closed off and I'm going to have to go a longer way round. Do we think that a 
I, I, I understand there were some genuine issues about um, taxi drivers and disabled um, access, and obviously you'll go into that in a minute. But do we think the speed of everything in the last year has caused potentially some of the, the concerns people have? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting point. Just doing some research for today's episode, I looked on the Street Space website at TFL, and um, you know, you you immediately recognise the changes that have been made near your home. So for me, as you know, we, we live near the Thames Embankment, and one of the changes is you can't turn left onto Chelsea Bridge if you're coming along the embankment, and indeed you can't turn onto it onto the bridge unless you're a bike um, and I sort of clicked on that one because I thought I know where that is and I know what that looks like and the first thing that I thought was really notable um, and which sits contrary to almost every other kind of planning is it says there's no public consultation about this it's streetscape so it's imposed and you can make a comment about what you think about it by emailing X, but there's no kind of obligation to consult before it's done, or indeed, as far as I could see, and I'm sure Dan can help us, to reflect upon concerns raised. I then had a look at some of the others, and in some of the London boroughs, they have had quite long uh, processes of interaction even if they've obviously put something in without talking first, they've had regular email contact when they have reflected upon responses and tried to answer some of the questions they've had on, you know, since whatever, since June, two or three times in the last six or eight months. But that did seem to depend very much on the local borough or the local authority. Dan, what's your experience been about that? The, the consultation issue is a big, big issue with street space the the actual policy itself talks about implementing things quickly and something else that came in around the same time as the london street space policy was guidance from the department for transport um, and that is guidance under the uh, transport management act 2004 so it's 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 binding guidance and that talks about implementing things quickly um, to, to respond to COVID. So there absolutely is. A lot of these things have come in in a way where consultation was not front-loaded. There was no consultation at the time these decisions were taken. That's, that's not the case for all of them. And one of the other things you see, which is quite interesting, is schemes that were in the consultation stage being sped up. So you will have had consultation prior to COVID, but then it was hurried through. So that, that's consultation beforehand. And I think that's one of the things you were talking about, Caroline, which is drivers don't feel like they've been brought along with a lot of these changes in many ways because no one has been brought along, to use that term, because it's been brought forwards very quickly with minimum interaction in a way where the interaction feels organic and uh, feels like it's the individual interacting with the local authority. Yeah, and I suppose you could imagine, I mean, for example, um, I have quite a lot of sympathy with saying, right, we can open the cafes and we can open the restaurants and we're going to narrow the road and get some tables out so that straight away they can start to get some income and straight away customers can start trying to sit down and, and, and enjoy as it turned out, the brief moment in the sun before they're shut down again. <laughs> and if you'd had a six-week consultation, you'd have missed the boat, wouldn't you? I mean, you'd yeah. have all been, you know, we'd have all been back inside. So I can, I can understand something like that and, and being very COVID-related, a very particular issue. Um, but something like, uh, you know, turning left on the bridge or putting in place a cycle lane or, um, as they've done on Park Lane, they've reduced the traffic to one, one line of traffic and having a two-way... Um, cycle pathway on the road um, are, are very, very significant changes. And 
I suppose you can understand them being COVID related as in encouraging people to cycle, not just get in their cars, but potentially a much longer impact. And for those to happen with no consultation um, uh, certainly seems it seems harder to justify. Um, but once again, we immediately get back to that problem of motorists feeling that they're you know, not part of the, the discussion. But almost all of us are mixed road users. So, you know, we can be a motorist one day and a cyclist the next. And uh, so I suppose it's really bringing the whole community along with the project, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think there is a difference as well between being consulted and your consultation points being considered, but in the end rejected, and just having something imposed on you and you, you've not even had your voice heard. Um, that's one of the things that I've certainly seen when looking at these schemes is that the feeling that people have is not that just they've not been listened to, but they've not even had the opportunity to speak in the first place. Mm. And that, that's difficult. I mean, from from perspective going forwards, one of the things that we might talk about in a bit is how these have been implemented is through, a lot of them have gone through using what are called um, uh, experimental traffic orders and temporary traffic orders. And what these do is allow for consultation and indeed require consultation in the future before they become permanent. So we might now start to see some consultation. I think a lot of people feel like the decision has already been made for them, though. Uh, you, you know, talking about the turning on um, on uh, Chelsea Bridge. I mean, I, I cycle past that and have, in fact, used that turning as a cyclist to, um, um, you know, to great advantage. Um, but I suspect for the local people around there, a lot of them feel like they've not been asked questions and it's just been done. Yeah, well, I suppose also it's sometimes not until you can see something in practice that you can recognise whether or not it's going to work. So, again, I can understand saying this is what we're thinking about and let's all try it out for a bit and then weigh up the advantages and the disadvantages. So, um, for example, on the turning left at Chelsea Bridge, before the ban turned up, there was a pathway for bikes, you know, the, the forward line for them to go ahead of the traffic. Um, but it's such an enormous pavement, for example, you could very easily establish a um, slightly cut turning for bikes so they could um, turn up and even just stagger the lights so they all went first and then allow the vehicles to turn, for example, um, uh, and still achieve much of the same benefit without uh, being unable to turn at all the effect of which is simply to push traffic further onto different bridges and 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 create congestion in a different way but uh, again that that's a sort of different thing trying something out and see how it fits for size is different from imposing something and then saying we'll hear your your consult your concern later um, and i can see how that feels and also We've mentioned this, um, I'm going to mention the word e-scooters again, um, <laughs> but just in terms of consultations and putting them on the roads in Bristol, in London, where uh, all the other different places, it's not normal traffic anywhere at the moment. Um, and in Bristol, we have part of Baldwin Street across Bristol Bridge onto the road where this office is. Um, has been closed off and um, my one of the partners of my team was on about it before this call today oh it's blah 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 she's not been anywhere near the office um, in 12 months so she's never actually had to drive along it and see what it's like um, and we've never had normal traffic again on these roads to see the impact it will have so it's been great for the last year for cyclists and everything else but whether or not it would be a permanent solution you can't tell until the traffic comes back and 
obviously it's going to start ramping up hope hopefully for everybody in the next couple of months so what are the plans for these temporary orders and these temporary roads bearing in mind life should hopefully start coming back to normal in the next say six months yeah that that is one of the big questions and a big concern of some of the parties who are bringing challenges to these decisions um, across London. I don't know if there are, I think there might be some challenges in Bristol as well, um, but I'd read about, I'm not sure. Um, one of the things that you see in the changes brought through with street space is some of the changes are management. So they're things like stopping turnings on a bridge or creating LTNs, low traffic neighbourhoods, or making school streets. And the changes to implement them are truly temporary in the sense that you bring in, you know, a big flower pot, which blocks the road, for example, I get a lot of those around me, or you change the road markings with just a bit of paint. And those are changes that have been used in practice a lot. And that's what the powers to make experimental traffic orders and temporary traffic orders would typically be used for. And these aren't new powers. The um, ETOs and T, uh, TTOs are in the Road Traffic Regulation Act, which is from 1984. So, the, the, you know, experimenting on the roads is not a new thing. The big difference about street space, for me at least, is twofold. One, the language used in street space is about transforming the streets of London, in this case. And, and it talks about having an eye to the medium term, so actually making a change that sticks. And then two, a lot of the things that have been implemented are termed temporary, but might, depending on your view, look permanent. And the big example of this is the cycle lanes, because they actually require quite a lot of street furniture that is permanent. So dug into roads or um, moving bus stops to allow for the cycle lanes. And so that's the real question is with a lot of these things that look permanent, but are said to be temporary, what is going to happen with them? How will consultation work with them? And could they be removed? Or is it now all sunk cost? Yeah, I think you can, I mean, Park Lane's a good example of that, where um, you can see they've had to move the, um, I, I'm sure it has a proper name, but the bit of curb that people stand on when they get on and off buses. So the protected bit of road for them. Um, uh, because obviously, not, if you've got a bus lane that's against the pavement you just get on and off the pavement but they've got now to get off in the sort of middle of the road so they've been given a sort of sheltered bit of pavement now you know that's not impossible uh to remove but that's that's above and beyond a couple of uh, flower pots or a concrete brick or whatever um and i mean it's not just um it's not just in london i mean we auto express who you might not be surprised to think are, are, are not altogether keen on some of these uh, traffic <laughs> restrictions uh, but uh, they they flag up the example of Winch wiltshire council um, so wiltshire council spent pretty nearly half a million quid on an exciting and ambitious project uh, to close salisbury city center to traffic um, and that only started on the 21st of October last year. So you would have thought, what was it, in November we all went back inside. It probably didn't have an awful lot of time um, to see if it was going to work or not. Um, but of that, about half of the money was spent on consultation and monitoring yeah. just to see, yeah. you know, what you're going to do in advance and what your monitoring is going to be. Um, and then a chunk on construction, uh, then about 100000 on 
enforcement, um, the the um, actual measures didn't cost very much at all, but um, they've had to suspend it entirely and uh, spent another chunk of money on removing it all because um, it didn't seem to work and there, there didn't seem to be the, the support from the city council uh, when it got up and running. Now that seems to be much harder to justify in terms of saying, let's put something in, have a go, see what it looks like and uh, then take it all out again and suddenly you're half a million down with not much to show for it. Yeah, um, that's exactly right. And it's difficult to make decisions on these schemes right now. As Carolyn's saying, the the roads aren't normal currently. So undertaking that kind of review that you're describing, Emily, where you've got people out on the streets counting cars, for example, it's a very different situation now. And how many cars will be here in a year compared to today? Really big question. Yeah, and of course, I suppose everything is towards reducing numbers of cars anyway. So uh, counting cars and relating it to historic data ought not to be a good comparison anyway, because regardless of street space, we're meant to be using fewer and fewer cars and, and, and you know, higher and higher alternatives regardless. Yeah, the, uh, the, that, that's a fair point. And active travel, uh, active modes of travel is one of the big things that comes through, not only street space, but the old policies as well. So the 2018 mayor's policy have as it. Um, I remember, I'm, I'm, I'm from York originally, there was a load of you know, was poster campaigns and stuff about encouraging people to get out on their bikes and walk there because it's, it's quite a small old city. It's, it's definitely not a new thing either in London or across the UK, trying to get people out on active modes. Um, so yeah, in that sense, maybe counting cars now is as useful as anything else because the past is the past. So with street space, is there any sense that it's focused on the last mile or the first mile of journey? So those very local journeys um, around the community, which obviously things like low traffic neighbourhoods and um, uh, are, are designed to, to supplement, or is it more about the longer kind of pan city commute, like the, the, the sort of cycle superhighways and, and the sort of longer distance chains of, of, of traffic, or is it a bit of a mix of everything? It's definitely a mix. The, the different interventions, I think, are aimed at different things. So the introduction of the temporary cycle lanes tends to be about cross-London travel. So some of the temporary cycle lanes that have been brought forwards were cycle lanes that were filling in the gap in the existing cycle superhighway scheme. Um, whereas some of the other changes, so low-traffic neighbourhoods, school streets are about that final bit at the end and changing the modes of travel at the ends of journeys. Um, and also a lot of the travel, I, I think I was reading in, in the article that Caroline sent over, that over half of the journeys in London are less than two miles anyway. Yeah, yeah. And so in that respect, I mean, most that, that is actually an incredible figure. I, I, had, I didn't know that. And in itself, you know, so most journeys in London or a majority of journeys are short journeys anyway. So in that sense... A lot of these interventions are aimed at the majority situation in London currently. Well, those of us that are long of tooth can say that it is a self-evident truth. You can see the traffic in London plummet in school holidays. It's really, really noticeable in that early morning traffic, how much of it is getting kids to school. Very short journeys, very local in cars. Yeah, and the, the, that, that's entirely what, well, that and safety is entirely what the um, street, uh, the uh, school roads are aimed at. 
Um, and they've been implemented in front of hundreds of schools in London. There's a good map on TfL's website that indicates where all the interventions are. And just across the entire city, there are just changes that in the front of every single school, like all of them, but lots of them. So moving on slightly to the um, the challenge that, um, was it the taxi drivers challenge? Yes. Um, and uh, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. So that's a challenge that was brought by UTAG, which is one of the representative bodies of taxi drivers, hackney carriage drivers in London. And they brought a challenge to one of the things we were discussing earlier, which was changes to Bishopsgate. Um, and the road was going through Bishopsgate. So what was, the, what was the change that was made that they were challenging? So the change was on, on uh, around Bishopsgate, the, the, the road itself was changed to a road that would only take buses and cycles. So the taxi drivers were particularly aggrieved about the fact that it excluded taxis, but there were also challenges which were more broadly related to the entire closure of the road to cars as well. And what was the basis on which the challenge was made? There are quite a few. The, the big ones were a challenge about taxis being essentially forgotten and the existing London policies that exist taking into account the existence of taxis um, and that they're an important part of London transport. So there was challenges related to that. There were challenges related to vulnerable road users and those who use taxis as a method of transport. And there was a challenge particularly to the environmental impact assessment, which was undertaken for the policy, um, or as Mrs Justice Lang found, the, the, the lack of one or the lack of a good one. And there were challenges about um, legitimate expectations and a couple of other more pure judicial review grounds. And then finally, the, the challenge actually succeeded on unreasonableness. So it was, it was found to be Wednesday unreasonable. And that, that isn't just the, the changes on the road itself, the so-called A10 order, which is the order that actually implemented the changes on the road. But the, the, these challenges also succeeded to street space itself. So the actual policy as implemented by the mayor. Now, uh, this was all quashed and the quashing order has currently stayed pending an appeal to the Court of Appeal, and also the judge talks about um, it being stayed while the um, TfL got, essentially had a discussion and tried to decide what it was going to do next. Okay, so just to unpick that a little bit for us, um, when you talk about... So, so if you go out now onto Bishopsgate, is the road still blocked while they're pending this further review? So, yes, everything is currently stayed yeah. pending the appeal. So the, the, the quashing order would be the order saying you've got to open up the road again, but that's stayed until they've had their appeal. And presumably yes. they're asking TfL to go in to do some further consultation and to try and negotiate a way through rather than carrying on in the courts with a yes-no answer. What I've read online, um, TfL is going in quite strong on the appeal. It's um, bringing quite a few grams and it is, it is planning to fight it. I don't know, they're, they're also... Um, uh, consulted on the matter but one of the issues is that the first instance judge quashed the actual policy itself under which lots of changes have been made through London so even if they can negotiate their way out of the issues in Bishopsgate that won't allow them to negotiate their way out of the other problems that are arising where street space has also been used and applied because it has an impact across every single policy all over the capital 
yes, when, whenever a decision was made by a local authority to rely on street space, I'm not saying it will mean that that decision is now illegal, but it's going to put a big question mark over you know, the effect that any purported or found illegality in the policy has. Yeah. So going back to our particular uh, interest of vulnerable road users, um, the arguments mounted by the taxi drivers were about access for those that don't have mobility, weren't they? Yes, um, they were. And something I didn't know, actually, about the black cabs in London, which I, I, I fell down a rabbit hole reading about black cabs and rules that apply to them. But I didn't know, for example, that, that a lot of um, disabled road users were given free access or subsidised access to black cabs to get them around London. Um, and that, that's obviously a great thing. And one of the complaints that was being raised by the taxi drivers was that it was greatly limiting how they could provide that service to um, vulnerable road users, disabled road users. So that was a big part. And that's, that was the equality impact assessment challenge to both the policy itself and to the particular rule on um, the A10 Bishopsgate order. The, the, the other thing to say on street space itself, vulnerability was considered in the street space, but it, a lot of it was focused on vulnerable individuals in times of COVID. So how we respond for vulnerable individuals to deal with COVID. One of the things that Mrs Justice Lang uh, raised as a problem was that vulnerable road users as vulnerable road users, so, you know, putting COVID to one side for a moment, was not really considered. And so that what seems to have happened, at least what was found at first instance, was that there was a f focus on COVID-19 without a consideration of the other difficulties that vulnerable road users face and would face from, you know, widespread closure of roads. I suppose that goes back to what we were reflecting upon, which is perhaps a slight... Um a uh, confluence of different issues. So you've got things that are brought in very quickly and rapidly because of COVID, uh, and then perhaps piggybacking or using other schemes that have a longer or wider ambit um, and, and how well they sit with those immediate concerns. Yeah, um, exactly. And one of the interesting issues going forwards will be which interventions survive this particular space of legal action and also survive regardless of what the outcome is. So, you know, there is a question about how some of the changes that have been implemented, possibly on a temporary basis, will eventually allow for a response that is desirable for vulnerable road users. Because a lot of the changes are. Um, the, the A10 order was against a particular change. Um, sorry, the, the Bishopsgate uh, challenge was about a particular change, which was the changes to the road itself. Um, but one of the things that you see, you know, is the low traffic neighbourhoods and whether they are positive or negative vulnerable road users, depending on what your vulnerability is as well. Yeah, and of course, I mean, we tend to look at um, vulnerability in, in, in this podcast, we tend to look at vulnerability in terms of other able-bodied road users, so cyclists, e-scooters, um, and those that are vulnerable to motorised traffic in terms of particularly cars, lorries and buses. But of course, uh, there are plenty of pedestrians would count as that and then there are plenty of reduced mobility uh, road users who are um, also under that um, umbrella. That, that That's a particularly good point actually because mine, as you'd have probably noticed, my mind's immediately gone to disabled road users who struggle to traverse roads but that's entirely correct which is there are other vulnerable road users who benefit massively from even you know the changes that 
in relation to Bishopsgate for, for cyclists having a separate road where only buses and cycles are allowed to pass. It'd be a great benefit from a safety perspective. So are we going to see increasingly in our townscapes car versus other road users? Are they being set increasingly one against another uh, with the proportion of um, uh, balance set uh, in favour uh, of the uh, wider vulnerable users against the car? I think these are really interesting questions and uh, thank you very much, Dan, for helping us to answer them uh, or begin to answer them with uh, relation to the streetscape policy. Um, we seem to have uh, managed to talk our way through these issues for a number of episodes in the past and I'm sure we'll continue to talk about them in the future but it's a real pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks Emma. No thanks Dan and I think um, coming to the end of this episode I think it'll be another one where we say potentially come back in the future and tell us how things have um, changed and adapted especially as um, as I said earlier we hopefully will all be start- starting to get back into the towns and cities. Absolutely. Yes well that's a big query, yes. Um, and obviously we'll see what happens with street space itself. Of course, what people may overturn. Well, this is just a slang. I, 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 I feel another episode coming on, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks ever so much, Dan. It's a pleasure to chat to you today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Dan. Bye. Thanks for listening. Wheel Life is brought to you by international law firm DAC Beechcraft and Barrister's Chambers, 39 Essex Chambers. Discover more articles, podcasts and webinars over at dacbeachcroft.com and 39essex.com.